Hi, everyone. Hi, guys. We are so, so excited to share some extra special news with you all. We have a very special announcement. We are going to be at Tree Fort 2023. We are so excited. It is the first official year of Pod Fort. And they invited us back. We are so freaking excited. Our event is going to be March 24th at 3 p.m. in the Boise Center East, room 420B. This event is part of Tree Fort Music Festival, but it's a free event open to the public. So think of it as like you are getting a free Who's Your Mommy live show. All you have to do is show up. You do not need a Tree Fort pass. You can literally just show up. We are so excited. So y'all have no freaking excuses to no not excuse. be there. Come hang out with us. Every single person who shows up to this live show is going to get an extra special piece of limited edition Who's Your Mommy merch. We've never Woo-hoo! done a little merch run before. This is our first kind of toe in the water. Mm-hmm. So don't miss it. It might never happen again. Yes. Um, Abby, do you want to tell them what we're going to be talking about? Oh my gosh, I do. So we are going to be ranking and talking about every single era of Scooby-Doo. You have to come. Bring your dad. He loves Scooby-Doo too. All of your friends love Scooby-Doo. From 1969 to Velma, we're ranking them all. We're talking about all of it. We're defining Scooby-Doo. We're debating Scooby-Doo. It's the battle of the vans. <laughs> it is the <laughs> spectacular Scooby-Doo showdown. I promise you, you do not want to miss this. This is Grace and Abby in our fullest research mode. Don't miss me simping out over Daphne's hot Scottish cousin. Over the Hex Girls. The Hex Girls. Every monster from the Creeper to now. It's going to be huge. So don't miss it. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars. Again, that is March 24th at 3 p.m. in the Boise Center East. Room 420B. We will be there and we will see you there. And afterwards, uh, I'll buy you an iced coffee. We love you. Hope to see you there. Am I doing it? Am I doing it right? Am I, is this okay? Is this okay with you? Mm-hmm. In the last 24 hours, two people have, we've been like, oh, hello. And they're like, are you a high five or a hug? High five or hug? First was Marissa. Oh, yeah. And Brandon coaches tennis. So that's something they're trained to do with their students is like, oh, high five or hug. Um, so you can get the consent of the student about what they want. Mm-hmm. But then today... I met, oh, Kate. Kate's a listener of the podcast. Hi, Kate. Kate, Hi. I think you're so cool. But Kate goes, are you high fives or hugs? And I was like, dude, I love that people ask this because like, yeah. mm-hmm. I am I am a hugger at this point in my life, but there have been times in my life where I'm not hugging and there are days where I'm like, I don't want to hug you. I just... I'm a little bit. I'm glad that that's becoming a thing. Yeah. Even though I haven't really noticed it too much, but I get really uncomfortable when people I have no idea. Like, it's not that I'm against hugging. It's just like... A little too much for me, I guess. I get it's overstimulated really quick, especially if like, you know, you walk into a room with like five people and it's like, you have to go down the, the line of hugging people. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. no, 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 no. I we never, at the end of camp, we have this thing called the H line where like on the last day of camp, you go down the row of staff members and all the kids can either give you a handshake, a hug or a high five. It's the H line. <laughs> and that way the kids get to just like, if they really love a staff member, they can hug them or if like... They just want to give the director a handshake. He can do that. My, when I was teaching, it was COVID. So my kid, we didn't, 
hug. That mm-hmm. wasn't like a thing. Yeah. And we didn't really even like high five. We were really, we were really COVID cautious. Mm-hmm. But then one student left kind of three quarters of the way through the year. And his mom was like, do you want to hug her? Do you want to hug Grace? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and he Aww. gave me this hug and I was like, oh, <laughs> my heart, my heart. Oh, we need to introduce Chase. Oh my God, we do. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Chase. Hello. This is a really huge moment for the podcast because since its inception, we've been wanting to bring on a guest and many guests, many guests, <laughs> and we've been too fucking scared too. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I'm the first one. I thought I'd be on like the list at number five. Well, you and <laughs> you and Brandon, we talked about doing one with like you and Brandon, mm-hmm. not off the table, by the way. Um, we've talked about a lot of guests, and <laughs> you're the first one to show up. Yeah. And I brought my own equipment. And that was huge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. Don't feel too special. <laughs> Just kidding. Um. Chase Franklin, tell us about yourself. Oh, about me, damn. Um, we have questions prepared, Matt. Oh, do you? Okay. Do we? We have one question. We have one question. <laughs> I guess in general, I'm a just kind of a tinkerer, and uh, I try a bunch of different art mediums. Um, in the past, it's been mostly music, but right now I go to school for game design, and that kind of brings a lot of things like from different areas into like that were in my wheelhouse and under one umbrella. Like uh, music design, visual art, um, scripting art, that kind of thing. Um, it's pretty fun. Um, yeah, but I guess I am a consumer of media as well. Word. <laughs> Hell yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm always excited to hear what Abby has to say. And I guess you as now too, being in the same room about like media we watch. So. Mm-hmm. Yay. Chase, what's your favorite Scooby-Doo monster episode adventure era era i mean definitely like the 70s scooby-doos like kind of just the older i mostly for the animation i love the way they do creatures um in older styles of animation like when you have less frames to work with um i really like phantom type ghosts and stuff like the uh the knight in the scooby-doo 2 is that right? Yeah. Yeah, dude. The Black like, Knight Ghost. Yeah, the Black Knight Ghost. That was those are some really cool effects. So, yeah. For for people who are new listeners to the pod, or maybe this is your first episode. By the way, Chase is my partner. <laughs> we did not establish that. Chase and Abby are a couple. Yeah, we've been a together for guys. <laughs> Just kidding. We have now been together for officially three years. So, hell yeah. Chase is not new. This is just our first time Chase having Chase on the podcast. Yes. Um, been, I'm kind of on the podcast. Yeah. Well, that's like you and Brandon. It's like you're... Mm-hmm. Also, Chase did our uh, theme music. All of, uh-huh. our, all of our Who's Your Mommy theme music was done by Chase. Oh, yeah. We're, I love that. Love that music. <laughs> yes. Um, my brother, Ruben, proposed that when we do our live show... Uh, which is the 24th at 3 p.m., Boise Center East, room 420B, and you should be there. It's free to the public. You have no excuse. Ruben proposed that when we do our live show, we should sing theme music a cappella. Um, and I was like, like, <laughs> and he's like, no, the Scooby-Doo theme. And I was like, right, not our theme. <laughs> not our theme. 
Okay. <laughs> I did very much have a dream, like, right after we found out about the live show that we were coming back, where we were doing the live show and Grace was, like, trying to sing our theme music, like, at the, at the beginning of the live show. <sighs> if there's one thing you need to know about Grace, it's that she loves I'll to be, do impressions. I'll be singing. I'll be doing impressions. You do pretty good impressions. Thank you. Yeah. I work hard at it. One of us me. has to be good at it. <laughs> yeah, I like them. Did you say surprise me? <laughs> But no, they always surprise me. Okay. Yeah. I was like, like right now. Uh, I was doing a, a God impression yesterday, and Brandon was like, could you say this in your God voice? And I was like, I'm can so you, cool. Can you give me a demo of the God voice? Uh, yeah. It was kind of like this and big. <laughs> that was the God voice. Sorry to put you on the spot, because I would hate that if you did that to me. No, I won't <laughs> do it. I won't do it to you. <laughs> it was uh, having fun theorizing about god <laughs> i had no. to do an impression grace has been to theater school she's used to being put on the spot i've been to yeah i've been to stupid theater school did i i have i ever told the story of how i cut my bangs in an acting class in like on stage in an acting class once like for the production or no so like just in cause. this class the assignment was it was a it was a class on stanislavski I do not like Stanislavski. All my homies hate Stanislavski. But in this class, um, our assignment was to go on stage and do something that you would only do alone. Um, but you can't masturbate, obviously, and you can't uh, call anybody. You have to, like, just be alone for ten minutes. And so, like, it was so uncomfortable. And you had a week to kind of decide. And I was like, okay, I've got a couple options. If I'm fucking floundering up there, I'm going to bring scissors because I need to touch my bangs up anyway. And I cut my bangs um, and I'd grown them almost out so I could pull them back. I cut my bangs in front of my acting class and got like a great grade and my teacher <laughs> fucking loved that I did that. But I was like, I can't believe that this is my school. <laughs> Why is this happening to me? <laughs> I never really like tried acting as much in like high school and I kind of threw myself, I never, I don't know, let's say, um, I kind of just assumed that I could do it or assumed that I couldn't not do it, I guess. And I like acted, well, I, you know, auditioned for a bunch of like stuff in, when I was living in LA and damn, that scared me. I, <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't know if I can do that again. Like, <laughs> and, uh, I respect anybody so much more for acting after like having had realized that that's absolutely not me. And that's, <laughs> yeah. It's so scary. Yeah. But yeah. Like how are you saying like be on stage for? 10 minutes and just fill dead air. Oh my God. Like I've had to do so much stuff like that. It's just, I've crashed and burned in, did not thrive in that environment. No. Well, the impulse is like to do something showy. And this was like, that was the incorrect move. You had to just kind of like go sit in aloneness, but you have 40 people watching you. Don't like it. Terrifying. Actors are better than I am because I can't do it. <laughs> I dropped my theater minor because I was too scared to take an acting class. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, if there's one thing you need to know about me, it's that being in front of people and being like the person on the spot is my worst fear. So the fact that I'm doing a live show for you guys, you better be fucking thankful. Feel appreciative. <laughs> show up. Bring your friends. You have no reason. <laughs> this is huge for us. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, acting. Yeah. 
Podcasting's my, easier. Yeah, podcasting is so much easier. This is my ideal form of content creation. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, what movie are we going to be talking about today? We are talking about Chase's favorite movie, which is The Princess Bride. Which is why he's here. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't just bring him on for any random movie. No, I specifically requested both Grace and Chase for him to come onto this episode because Princess Bride is his favorite movie and it's a movie we've watched together so many times, many times. Um, and so I thought it would be a really special episode for him to be a part of. I'm excited to talk about this movie. I'm excited to talk about it with uh, people who really, really love this movie mm -hmm. because I'll, I'll get into it later. Um, I'm not asking to be convinced that I like this movie. It's just not my favorite. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any reason that I don't think it's good. I think, like, fucking good movie. I just don't enjoy it. And I do blame my brother Ruben, because Ruben, as a kid, had this issue with, quote-unquote, real people movies, where it would make him very uncomfortable to watch movies that weren't cartoons. Um, he wants to be an animator. It's all worked out great. But... We really only watched cartoons with Ruben, and I remember a few times trying to watch this movie and having Ruben just being a fucking little bitch the whole time. <laughs> and so I think for me, and like rewatching it, I was like, yeah, nothing wrong with this movie. It's the, just not a movie that I go rewatch for comfort. <laughs> it's really interesting because the reason, one of the reasons I like it, I mean, there's many, but um, one of the reasons I like it is it doesn't feel real. Like, it doesn't feel like real people. It kind of feels like a cartoon. It keeps that essence of like magic and disbelief like before reality which i think even in fantasy type movies or shows people really struggle to detach like reality from their show because uh i think obviously reality if you can build on what people already know you can do complex character growth and stuff like that but fantasy inherently feels better to feel like you're experiencing a different world and i think this movie does a really good job with it and so it's kind of interesting to say that like, I, I was almost expecting you to say that he liked this movie, but doesn't like other live-action ones, but that's funny. No, it's just, like, I think, I don't think he ever gave it the time of day. I don't know if you watch it now, I bet he would think it was great. Um, it was just, like, when we had it on DVD, and I remember watching it with my dad and with Ruben, and it being like, this is fine. This does feel like a movie that your dad would like. My dad loves this movie, yeah. and I think a lot of people's dads love this movie. Oh, yeah. It's just one of those. It's great. My dad was bigger on the Dark Crystal. Um, I would rather, I would rather shit a brick than watch the Dark Crystal uh, in <laughs> again because those bitches scare me so so bad. But it does feel like same era or like Time Bandits or actually. Dude, those those kind of movies scared me when I was a kid, like a lot. But I think I've now come full circle, and those are my favorite movies. Mm -hmm. Fair. Um, <laughs> like the ones that terrified me as a kid are like hit perfectly now. Yeah. Hmm. But have you watched The Labyrinth in your adult life? Because that one. I've actually never seen that movie, like once in my entire life. And I want to. I would like to. I believe it's on Netflix. There's no reason for me not to have seen it. I just haven't seen it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, Fever Dream type Fever Dream stuff. Movies? Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It. <laughs> yeah, Fever Dream is a good aesthetic for me now where like they can be hard to get through and like you don't necessarily want to start it when you know what you're approaching. But I feel like those are the ones that I like sit down and pay attention to and just kind of feel like you're on a trip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
It's the 80s week. I didn't even realize that we're talking about two 80s, the next two weeks of Mommy Potter 80s um, media. Yeah. Uh, some more than others. But mm-hmm. I think here's the thing about all these movies. If my friend, like if a friend of mine was like, oh yeah, here's this thing I made. It's the Princess Bride. I'd be like, that's so fucking great. That's such a fun like subversion of the fairy tale. It's also just so fun and so funny. Um I think as a kid, I experienced it for the first time just too young to, like, get a lot of the jokes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know what? I just fucking remembered something. In high school, Ruben did an 80s movie scene night with his peers. And he did the the poison scene. That's so funny. (laughs) That little asshole ruined this movie for me. (laughs) He does like it. Anyway. So that's pretty kind of all I have to say on the movie. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk about my background on the movie a little bit, but I know Chase has a lot of, like, fun little theories and stuff to talk about. <laughs> yeah. um, but we, this is a movie that we had on DVD when I was growing up, so I've seen it quite a bit. It just was never, like, my absolute favorite. It's just one that I've seen pretty frequently. And I have good fond memories of. And then I think when Chase and I started dating and you were like, this is my favorite movie of all time. I then had, like, even more good associations with it because I was like, oh, this is my partner's favorite movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I have a lot of complex reasons for liking it that are, like, different than uh, just what's contained in the movie itself. Um, I guess the first thing I start on would be, like, the medium that they're choosing and, like, how they use it. So, like, it feels kind of meta, and most fairy tales are written you know, long ago, and now we just, like, adapt them to, like, the current age, right? This one kind of was fabricated at the time it was writing, but they, like, in the original book, there's a lot of meta stuff where he's, like, writing, like, this is a book that his grandfather used to read to him, but he couldn't find it, and had to, and then realized his grandpa had read him only the good parts, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the book's actually, like, within the book, it's writing about another book that's fictional, and that whole little interaction story is not real um Mm -hmm. it's all just part of the story and the way you you tell it and then that same author was actually a his main job was a screenwriter screenplay writer and so it was like his attempt at a a book and then going back and taking his like his book that he wrote to be a play on the medium of writing a book and then move that to the screen is kind of interesting Mm -hmm. um in the way they adapted it over to as well because i don't think that that book would do well as a movie just like with anybody writing the screenplay for it um and uh one, one of the kind of things that i've been learning in school and been really focused on right now is is kind of the the power of a medium like to use a medium's greatest strengths to like be able to tell a story um and i think this movie does it in a way that like Knowing that and knowing kind of the backstory and watching it um, with like a fully fictionalized uh, fairy tale that was never really a true like folk tale or anything like that. It's just kind of at the moment, the time it was written, um, all that stuff was fabricated. And I think it's really interesting to see how things come out of that. Um, I guess second to that, I don't want to just like be a, a wall of text here as a as a guest. It's okay. It's audio. <laughs> um, yeah, some of the ways that I think they do great with that is like it feels 
it feels a little bit like a play. Like it's almost like the the characters within it know when they're on screen and when they're not. Um, and I kind of love that where it breaks the reality even more. And once again, it all just lends itself to feeling like a real fairy tale and something kind of unreal, which can be lost with like live action footage and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. In, in, uh, Stephen Sondheim said that content dictates form and he was saying that specifically about musical theater. So like when you're writing a dark op, you know, story that takes place at an opera house about a ghost and a vulnerable woman who he manipulates and, you know, commits murder over, you are writing stylistically very different than if you're writing a different story. Sondheim did not write Phantom of the Opera. I want to make it clear that I know that. Um, <laughs> but like, so it's interesting, like in musical theater writing, you're like, okay, if you're writing a small, intimate story, that music that you're creating and the instruments you want to use are super different than if you're telling a big epic fantasy story. And I think that's something that gets lost now that we have so much money in our film industry and every film can be so high budget is like content dictates form when you're telling a small little fable. You don't actually need to pour cash into it. Mm-hmm. You can yeah. you can tell it on an intimate scale. And I I do think that a lot of 80s 80s media and 90s media specifically captures like that that sentiment yeah it worked beautiful with the constraint they had where mm-hmm. yeah nowadays it's like people attempt to show you everything i think that was my biggest problem with the newest lord of the ring series it was very much that like all the things that were ethereal and weren't supposed to be able to really be conceived you know as a just a human brain when you're thinking about like stuff like uh who the valar are uh you know these things aren't really supposed to be shown on screen that's why the lord of the rings takes like the uh, position of the hobbits to feel like a grand open world. There's so much to explore, but if you were to explain everything, you would lose that. And uh, yeah, so eighties with the constraints of not having easily accessible CGI, I think that they almost hit gold with that moment because smaller movies can still feel good. Where a lot of today's stuff, it's the budget difference means they still, even with a low budget, people still try to show the whole world. And mm-hmm. even when it shouldn't be, when you can't do it effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, like stuff that's supposed to be very ethereal, kind of like only something you can imagine or feel, um, can sometimes take it away in the symbolicness and like what it means to an individual person by like showing every detail. Okay. Similar to like the difference between like reading a book where you fill in who a person is and their character to you. Versus like, because you can't actually just see them or see how their language flows and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Something they teach in creative writing is like, when you're first learning how to write creatively, you're taught to use every detail possible, especially about how your characters look. But I have, I sort of take the opinion when in doubt, if it's not important, if it's not going to be relevant, don't say it. Mm -hmm. Because like, like Josh Hutcherson was like, I imagined myself as Katniss Everdeen, right? (laughs) (laughs) People are placing themselves in this story and, you know, some details are important, but people's brains are amazing. Mm -hmm. People's, People's abilities to put a story together from what you give them are so much more powerful than what we give them credit for. It's why the Muppets are successful. I have a love-hate relationship with the Muppets. 
fuck Muppets. <laughs> oh, they're so freaky. I had some actual fever dreams with the Muppets when I was a child that altered me for life. In my adulthood, I've come to respect them and, like, enjoy, like, I watched the Muppets' Letters to Santa. I enjoy the absurdism of the Muppets in the same way I enjoy the absurdism of Scooby-Doo, honestly. Mm-hmm. But they're so fucking freaky. Yeah. Something that you pointed out to me, actually, is that my favorite forms of media are media that feel like plays. <laughs> and that's not something I realized about myself until we were watching... I can't remember what movie we were watching, but I was like, oh my gosh, I love this movie. And Chase was like, yeah, you love this movie because it feels like a play. And you love movies that feel like plays. Oh, yeah. Um, is it see, what, where the, see How They Run? Oh, yeah, yeah see, see How They, they run, run was what we were watching. The, like, murder mystery mm-hmm. one with Saoirse Ronan. Ugh, and um, there's just something about media that feels like a play that, like, warms my heart. That, like, when you can kind of see, like, what's going on in the background and, like, you can see the set changes or you can see like the, yeah, the transitions, the are built transitions. In. Yeah. Or you can see like the fucking weird ass rodents <laughs> that like <laughs> there's somebody controlling, controlling those rodents, rodents and, and like, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Like I those love are real. They're real. The rodents. What grace? <laughs> but uh, kind of back to what you're saying about like all the, you know, when you're learning to write, you should write all the detail. I'm a little bit of a surrealist more than a realist. And, but in the same way with like the painting, um, like evolution of that, to be a really good surrealist, you still have to like go back and learn how to write in a lot of detail. And then you're consciously choosing what details to leave out rather than, uh, you know, just less work. It's usually more work to do a surrealist like piece of art, whether that's a movie, a book or painting, anything. Um, It feels very much like, it's like making something visual and making something digestible that is like an inner emotion and something that can't really be explained. All you can really do is make metaphors and allegories and stuff like that and kind of work around the idea and give people an inner feeling more so than like what's just on screen. And I think that Princess Bride does that really well and gives you kind of just that whatever they did, whatever the special spot sauce is, I can't really explain it. But that feeling you get inside while watching it, I guess, is uh, much more of a surrealist piece to me than what's literally happening in the scene. And I think that's really interesting. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, like you said, it is a pretty small-scale um, production as far as just how many characters get introduced, how many background environments there are and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There are some that are just amazing, like the... the uh, Cliffs of Insanity. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that is one of my favorite sets of all time. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. Sets that feel like they were constructed by high schoolers on a budget. I love that set. Sets that Mike Baltzell built. (laughs) Um, I have some actually, actually some notes on the financials of the movie because... Sorry, y'all. I just make you do math. Um, (laughs) Well, you do the math for us. I do the math and just explain it. So I was looking. So this movie came out in 1987. It had a $16 million budget um, and it made uh, $30.9 million in the box office. So I actually, in my mind, was like, oh, it's a cult classic commercial success. But it did recoup, which was great. And Mm -hmm. it made $14.9 million, which is relatively modest but i Mm -hmm. think for a you know like you said like a surrealist very artful very heady (laughs) fantasy weird fantasy story i think it's that's 
them to make money. Um, the other for... thing was it was also in like production deadlock for forever. Oh really? I didn't yeah, know that. like it was like a decade where they were trying to get it made and studios kept bailing on it and stuff like that. So it ended up being a passion project, but I think it all ended up working out really well because because of having to wait, they were able to get the cast like they wanted, like uh, Andre the Giant as Fezzik and stuff like that it was kind of really dependent on it all just happened at the right time after like 10 years of that of that screenplay being like shelved. Gives me hope. <laughs> yeah, I guess the, the passion project of a of a like professional screenwriter that is like a shadow screenwriter on a ton of other movies. It was like his breakout thing where he's like this is my piece of work, mm-hmm. you know. It's, it's me. <laughs> my <laughs> successful ghostwriter. <laughs> I'm not writing another drama like for somebody else, you know. Like, I want to write my weird fantasy story. Yeah, dude, just let me. (laughs) The most successful movie of 1987 was Beverly Hills Cop 2, um, which made 289 million at the box office. It was a 27 27 million dollar budget and 316 dollar made in the box office, which that nets out. And that is so many, so much more money. Um, and a lot of times what I like to do is like, okay, look at the top selling animated movies of this time, whatever, mm-hmm. compare and contrast. But I was like, okay, Princess Bride, obviously, like, how does this even compare to like other weird, heady fantasy 80s? Like when I think of like 80s fantasy, I was thinking about The Labyrinth, The Neverending Story, and Spaceballs. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just kind of like... That time frame. So Neverending Story came out in 1984, and that made $73 million. It netted Damn. out to 73. It was a $27 million budget, $100 million in the box office, $73 million came out to. That's a fuck ton of money. And I was like, damn, were they trying to get to that? Because clearly they didn't. Spaceballs was a $22.7 million budget, $38 million at the box office. They made $15.3 million. So Spaceballs and Princess Bride made about the same. Um... Labyrinth with David Bowie did far worse. It made um, it made more money than Princess Bride, but spent more money than Princess <laughs> Bride because probably because they had David Bowie. They only made nine million dollars oh, in damn. the box office. So obviously, all these movies did worse than Beverly Hills Cop, but Princess Bride and Spaceballs did about the same, and that was a lesson for me because I thought Princess Bride was like a critical failure and a, or a box office failure, but I wouldn't call that a failure. No. That's pretty pretty good. As someone who makes a lot of budgets for the arts, I think if you can net out in the positive, that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about so many movies that don't net out positive. Yeah. Like, and I think it's become less and less common for fantasy media, especially, to do that. Because they just throw money at their story problems. Mm-hmm. So I, I do have this theory about, like, I, I've been talking about Abby about it for a while, but very <laughs> much so that, like, Every generation kind of learns from a different generation. It's like the the idea of, you know, staying on shoulders of giants where people that are, you know, art is being made right now by our generation and will continue to be like as our generation kind of reaches its peak of output and developing ideas that they got from the media they consumed. Um, But a lot of that media that we're going to make is not going to be understood by us. (laughs) And, but having the next generation come up and being finding those media sources that were kind of before their time, which actually made in their time, but before their time, as far as mainstream culture, where I think really the best movies are like doomed to fail 
when they're released or like any kind of media. Like if something constructs the future, it's of the future, not the past. Or I guess the present is too early for it, you know, like because you need uh, like every every piece of media stands a little bit with the understanding that other media gives you. So having more of a saturated market for like a certain type of media means that you can have a more successful movie, like I guess monetarily. Um, but if one piece of media sticks out like away from the norm, it's a lot harder to have like energy around it. And I think a lot of these movies like, uh, like Treasure Planet and Atlantis that you guys have talked about are very much like they were made for us and we all loved them. But the people who made it were our parents' generation and our parents' generation did not care for them. They did yeah. not care at all. Yeah. Um, and part of it, like we think, is because they didn't understand them, but there's going to be a day where we don't understand mm-hmm. like a lot of the next generation's culture and media and don't understand like a lot of things will just go over our heads. But mm-hmm. right now I feel good in feeling that like we're right on the money as far as this is like the time in our lives where we are so ingrained with culture and like we're the ones pushing it rather than being a consumer when you're younger and then being completely outside of it when you're older. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think also like, was it, yeah, it's treasure planet that did not make very much money at all. I don't remember if it netted out in the positive treasure planet and Atlantis kind of get confused in my mind. Yeah, um, me too. But, but that, they, that type of movie, like you're talking about like our parents generation made it, but didn't really get it. Also, our parents were the ones taking us to those movies. So, like, a lot of me is like, would those movies have made more money if we, the children, had the money to spend on them? You know? Yeah. Like, instead of our parents being the ones buying the tickets. I feel like a lot of it was, I mean, we grew up in, like, DVD and VHS culture, where, like, I don't think we really saw those kind of movies in the movie theater, to be honest. It was more like, we go to a movie store, and my parents let me go run wild and pick out something. And then they put it on in a different room because they don't want to watch kids media. And so, like, I've watched that movie maybe a thousand times before my parents even know what it is, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And those are where those, like, Treasure Planet and Atlantis movies really thrive. And the rewatchability, even as a kid, when you don't really understand why you're rewatching or why you like something, you just do. Mm-hmm. And I love that subconscious, like, pure energy of, like, being a kid is the most obvious thing of it because you really have no dynamic control of your wants and needs you just kind of do as you do because you like something it's only like when you get older that you can reflect on why you liked it Mm -hmm. but uh it was very much like i would get a dvd or a vhs and i would watch that over and over again without like you know so if atlantis came out i don't like in the theaters i don't think that my parents would have taken me to it but i think a lot of our generation is based around like, like, you know, we all found kind of a media that we really liked and we were able to watch it almost like independently. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's funny because like our parents were like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Atlantis, whatever. But Princess Bride, you got to watch that because that's from their youths yeah, and they yeah. look, and I, I doubt that I will be different as a parent. Mm-hmm. Like. And and I also, I remember the victory. It felt like when I would go see a movie with my dad and my dad was really into it. And my dad, 
I have a really, my dad kind of gave me so much of my taste in media, but he was huge, huge on Avatar The Last Airbender. And I remember like he was the one who like got me into it um, and was watching it with us. And I, so like there is media that appeals to everyone and that appealed to the parents, or maybe I just had a unique dad. Maybe my dad's just a manic pixie dream girl, <laughs> but he, he, yeah, it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. So I have a question for you. So was Princess Bride one of those movies that you watched on repeat as a kid and then it continued to be your favorite when you were an adult? Or I can't really say that anything's my favorite. I think I go in phases. I get like a little bit obsessive about things. And like I have a lot of movies that I would say are up there where I've watched them a ton of times. Like Speed Racer is one of them. I have a ton of other ones. It's just they don't always come to mind and maybe I'll forget about them for like a year. And then, like, I'll enter a new stage of my life where I've just learned a bunch of new things and realized that looking back, like, this media had a really big impact on me, even though I haven't watched it since I was six. Like, for this new era of character growth in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, it kind of comes in phases. And I will say, like, Princess Bride was one of my favorites. I think it was a, a lot of it to do with, was to do with the surrealism um, and just that absolute fantasy uh, but uh i don't yeah i i don't know i think my parents probably did give it to me but they never really cared about it too much mm-hmm. um they're just like you'd probably like this one yeah because i remember my parents introducing me to it and then being like this is a movie i had on repeat when i was a kid and i was like okay kind of like meh about it have either of you seen Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas? No, but you've talked about it a lot. I, so I, this is a, it's a fascinating reverse experience where it was on when my dad was a kid. Like it was of my dad's childhood, but he has no memory of it until like I was an adult and I was like, watch this movie. What <laughs> the hell is this? And now it's like a family favorite like, I think the way we build, like, our relationships to media is so interesting because mm-hmm. also my dad is like, well, I just associate that movie with you. Mm. Like, I know you love Rudolph and Emmett Otter, and so we watch them every year. Yeah. He's not associating with his childhood. I'm associating it with my childhood. He's associating it with me. Oh, interesting. Um, and they're, like, I just, I, I do this with albums, like... There, there's music I just don't listen to anymore because it just reminds me of people. There's songs that come on. I'm like, Pua, Freshman Year, this was our song. Mm-hmm, and yeah. there's albums like, I've shown a lot of people Beyonce's Lemonade album and been like, we're listening to this all the way through. And my friend Calvin, they were like, um, Grace, I play that. And I'm like, Grace Ward. Grace, <laughs> hi, Calvin. They're a big listener of the podcast too. Yes. Um, Media is a very like, I, I think one of the, it's the greatest tool for like sharing emotions. Like you, you don't watch a movie necessarily because of, or music is a great uh, example of this, where it's more about the experience you get from it than it is whatever the song is even about. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I do the same thing where I can't listen to older music that I've listened to. It feels dated because my emotions that I generated and got from those songs are dated to me. Like I've outgrown those emotions that I've tied to that song. So, like, I can listen to something new that's, like, from the 80s or early 2000s, and all of a sudden it has, like, the meaning of what it feels like to be me now. Um, like, last year it was me kind of discovering Gorilla's old discography, and genuinely, like, I, I grew up when they were, like, super popular, and uh, Demon Days was, like, 
on the radio and stuff like that, but I never cared for it when I was a kid. And having like that now, it's like now I think of those songs as my emotional maturity of like last year rather than it's just when you kind of experience it and what kind of thoughts you get from it at the time. And I totally understand that. Like where Princess Bride kind of falls in this thing where it was absolutely my favorite movie for a certain period of my life. You can't really explain why until you're out of that period of life, but I can't really say it's like my favorite movie of all time because it's changing with my emotions and my emotional maturity. Do you want you want to talk about the movie? <laughs> We are, oh, yeah. we are talking about this, this is oh. movie. <laughs> Tell us more. Well, one thing that I really like is fantasy always falls, like, I mean, I guess not always, but for a lot of the time falls under just the hero's journey type thing. And Princess Bride isn't really different in that regard, except for that all of the hero's journey steps take place off screen. Um, and so they, they play with the idea of, like, you know, the hero, right? Um but it finds this way to not be cliche and they, f- they make inflection points that are like, I don't know, I guess more interesting and thought provoking. Cause you have to like, somebody had to work at setting up those steps. Um, like the, uh, I guess the advice giver or the, you know, the, the wizard in the hero's journey would have been the, uh, the dread pirate Roberts. Like, the first one. yeah, well not the first one, <laughs> the one, the one ahead of, of, uh, yeah. Um, but they kind of like run you up to speed with it, with the, the trials of thing with, uh, Vicini, um, where, you know, the hero usually goes through trials and you can see they kind of bring you up to speed with where Wesley is, um, because they give him the trials, but he passes them easily. You know, he's already like got it all figured out. You know, they show that he is a mastermind with a sword, like, so his skill is like so that's the trial of like skill and then trial of strength against Fezzik and then the trial of wits with uh Vizzini. And it almost feels like a TDLR, right? <laughs> like <laughs> of character growth where they're like this is not we don't want to tell the the hero's journey story. We want to tell a different story. But we want everyone to get that nostalgic fantasy feel that the hero's journey brings and I think it's like married really well. Mhm. That's an excellent way of looking at that. Because I, I watched it and I was like, I don't feel like this movie has a fucking protagonist because we're with Buttercup all the time. Fucking ate Buttercup. Yeah, Buttercup's <laughs> pro- Buttercup is easily the weakest part of the, the movie. Um, I ranked the She's characters. the weakest character, for sure. <laughs> and she only pisses me off. But Race has slides. Buttercup. Buttercup is purely a plot driver, in my opinion. She's a prop. And, like, the feminist in me is like, don't put women in movies if you're just going to use them as props. But, I like, I... I Thank you, Chase. You are recontextualizing that we are following the side character the whole movie because it's actually pretty cool that the hero's journey is happening off screen. Mm-hmm. I have had a personal battle with the hero's journey this year as I've written a book because while I do believe it is a very, very useful tool, I also think it's really powerful to sub- be subversive of the hero's journey. And it's really hard to do. Because that's, like, that's just how stories make sense. Like, mm-hmm. the hero's journey makes a lot of sense. But fuck, I don't want to put a wizard in my book. <laughs> but then I did, and I was like, oh, I love, this is, like, the mentor character. It's like, it's really, ah! it's really Well, the reason that the wizard turns into the mentor character is because it's really hard to write, like, a really powerful character. Because it feels almost just like a, uh, like, plot cheat. 
you know, so you, if you have a really powerful character, you constantly have to have a reason why they're not there or like why they like can't Gandalf. do something. Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> exactly. Well, Gandalf has done masterfully and I feel like mm-hmm. Gandalf is like, you know, the, uh, the textbook on that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. when you have like a way too powerful character, you want them to be cool because they're powerful, but then you just can't have them around. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to write them and then immediately write them out. And that's why I have beef with Dumbledore. Like, I have talked to Chase about Fuck this. Dumbledore. I fucking hate Dumbledore. He's never there, but there's never a reason why he's not there. If you can he's supposedly, solve... He's supposedly doing all this shit. Where is the result of that shit? Yeah, like, what is he actually doing? If you're yeah. powerful enough to just solve these problems, why are you letting a 13-year-old just handle this? Yeah. <laughs> I find it's the most on display. Like, I... Uh, it's for me it's it, as of recent recent history the most on display of that problem is the superman movies like the warner brothers ones where straight up to make the justice league their only option was to write a, a part where superman dies or else there'd be no point for justice league because obviously like those characters were envisioned at different periods of times and not necessarily connected and they're trying to make a universe where there's a bunch of heroes or whatever um, what, like but there's no need for the rest of the heroes again. when you have Superman. So like, what are you going to do? I do think that's a big flop and that's why it's so obvious to be able to see that on display, but that's a big problem in almost every franchise. And I think you don't notice it when it's done well and handled well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think like uncle Iroh and Avatar, I don't know if both either of you are like mm-hmm. super into that show, but I've loved that show. And I think he's exceptional cause he is a mentor figure for one character but he winds up, his mentorship is impactful on everyone, and there are a lot of different mentors, but then every mentor has, like, their issue, right? Because such a huge theme in that show is that the kids are, despite being younger, they have a clearer sense of what they're fighting for, mm-hmm. and they are able to be beneficial. The student will teach the master. I also think Master Shifu's a fucking great example <laughs> in Kung Fu Panda. Not that I'm hinting at a future episode. I think, well, I think it's important that your mentor is flawed. Yeah. Because, like, well, once again, like, I guess back to the other idea of, like, you know, you never really understand what the next generation is going to do. That means if, if you, if there's a mentor that doesn't have a weakness to, like, the current times, that's why the, there's a need for a new hero. And there's a need for a new hero that can learn from the old master and the best in the things that he can teach him. But there's so many, the reason that they need a hero is because the master is lacking something that is needed for the new age. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, having, like, most of the time the flaw is just they're too old, which I think is kind of weak and lazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be done well, but, yeah, um, I think, like, a flawed uh, mentor character is a really good way to go around it, uh, go about it, and, like, make that a part of the dynamic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Jack Sparrow's, like, in that hero's journey, in many ways, a mentor character to uh, Will Turner. Mm-hmm. And I do appreciate that Jack Sparrow doubles as the wizard and the anti-hero. Yeah, um, I love that. That's a good dynamic. It is. It's really, it's really fun. It's really fun when they sub- are subversive about it. And, like, I think The Princess Bride is very subversive about it. Mm-hmm. I also just love stories with bands of, like, a scraggly ensemble of villains who aren't that bad. Yeah. Ugh, ten for me. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Here's where I think that buttercup fits into the story is i think she's made to ground there's not too many characters they actually introduce by name like obviously there's extras and stuff like that but she's there to like everybody in this movie has 
you know, plans and motivations that are intentionally uh, kind of behind the scenes, right? And that's what a lot of the, I mean, not necessarily behind the scenes, but as far as like the reality of the universe that they occupy, like most of the people are not aware of, uh, you know, uh, Humperdinck's plot to like go to war and, and you know, all that, that stuff. Uh, Wesley, totally nobody really knows who he is. Um, and he likes to keep it that way. Um, so he has a lot of motivations behind him that like the general public in this world don't understand. And Buttercup fits in to ground all those motivations and to help the audience under like to telegraph to the audience that like these are behind the scene things. Like not that just that, you know, everybody knows about what's going on. It's like, these are supposed to be secrets and Buttercup is there to show the naivety of like the population around them, mm-hmm. I feel like. And that's kind of her use in the plot. Mm-hmm. That does lead her to being super aggravating and feeling like, hey, get with it. Make at least one smart decision. <laughs> but when the reality of it is, is that if you take it knowing that she has no idea about all the stuff that's going on around her, that everybody, like the mind games that everyone else is playing, she's just taking everything for face value, what she sees her decisions aren't that stupid. <laughs> she mm. thinks that her boyfriend, who she remembers as literally just being a slave <laughs> with no hard skills, right? She sees him up against like the, the prince with all power and all this stuff and thinks, you're going to die. <laughs> you have no chance of beating him. And so that's why she like sells him out to like save his life because she thinks that she's doing the, the better thing for him. But it's really about... Like, so her, I don't know, the aggravating thing she does is because they're trying to display, like, naivety, I guess. Mm -hmm. Abby, what do you think of Buttercup? I, as a kid, always thought of Buttercup as just, like, the princess archetype of, like, she is meant to embody everything that you think of when you think of, like, a beautiful princess and, like, somebody that everybody wants to be. Um, and I just, I never really thought of her as anything more than that. Like, she's just kind of there. She's there to be pretty and, like, be the object that everybody's fighting over. But that's, that's really it. That's, she's not really there for anything else. Something that's super interesting to me, this movie came out in 1987. We grew up on the Disney movies of the 90s and 2000s, where the princess archetype when I'm like, yeah, princess, I'm like, fucking Mulan, Tiana. Mm-hmm. Um, even, like, Ariel and Belle are kind of the last of, like, the sit there look pretty, and you're starting to look in, like, Ariel's got hobbies, she's a hoarder. Yeah. <laughs> and Belle reads, so pretty much they do things. Like, I, I don't think I grew up with a lot of media where the girl just sat and did things. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually interesting, because I, I think that kind of plays into... When they're making, like, when you're making media, right, you take the current understanding of the world and how people will take on information to be able to, like, craft a story to them. Because the audience is a huge part in how you tell a story. Um, Because this was made in the 80s, I think they use the comfort of the audience with that type of, like, princess character, like, kind of the helpless princess character, to be able to push that plot of, like, the complex stuff, I guess, mm-hmm. um, using how simplistic P- 
people's view of like the princess things are. And I think that that's why it doesn't stand up today in that regard. Um, because obviously culture has shifted and that's not where everybody's starting places with fantasy media. When you go to watch that movie, now you've experienced like all this rich, like new age princess type stuff where there's strong female characters and have like internal action to be able to solve their problems rather than have somebody else solve them for you. Yeah. But they're almost like taking a play on what people expect from a princess at the time it was created to use it towards pushing the plot he does want to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, once again, Buttercup is my least favorite character in the whole movie. It could have been done better, but for the purpose I think that she was put in there for, it served well. I just wish that they gave her a little bit more character dynamic than being pretty. <laughs> yeah, it always made me mad. Because, like, as a kid, I always wanted a girl character to relate to. And as the fact that there was no girl character that I actually liked, like, kind of made me mad about the movie. Like, I was like, I want a girl character who's cool. I want a girl character that I can relate to, that I can walk out of the movie and be like, oh my gosh, I loved her. Like, I want to be her. But I don't want to be Buttercup. Nobody wants to be Buttercup. So that that's an interesting thing with, like, I, I feel like gender immediate is a really interesting thing to take on um, being, like, who do people relate to? Because when you're telling a story, you want everybody to be able to relate to the char- like the main character mm-hmm. like that you're writing for. And gendering your character almost makes it, like, hard to do that for half the population. Mm-hmm. So I think if you guys, when you were kids, like, were able to identify with Wesley instead of Buttercup, it would have gone over a lot better as far as, like, mm-hmm. how the story is supposed to feel when it progresses. Yeah. Um, but I guess that kind of introduces an interesting question of just, like, how often do you do that? How many times do you miss the energy of a certain type of media based mm-hmm. on relating to the wrong character? Yeah. Or, like, trying to trying to relate to a character that's not the one that you're supposed to relate to. Mm-hmm. Well, and I feel like there's a lot of media where it's set up as, like, this is the character who's your, you know, mm-hmm. every story has a character who's your lens into this world because even even stories that are dead realism take place in worlds that aren't our own, right? Like, every world within a story is a different world than our own because it exists in the story. And there's always a character who you're supposed to see as like, oh, this is my way in. And even in an ensemble cast, there might be a few different telescope characters, right? But I think you're totally right. that sometimes, And sometimes stories are set up, and I'm like, I know this is supposed to be, like, who I relate to. But God, I fucking hate them. You are bugging the shit out of me. I'm going to backtrack a little bit and say that I don't think that Wesley's supposed to be relatable. Um, they don't, once again, they don't show any kind of on-screen growth of him. Um, they don't show him ever really having a weakness. Um, it's really mostly there for the surrounding to unfold and he's almost like a set piece. But I will say that that introduces a really interesting thing with my projection on Wesley and probably why I like the movie so much is, uh, like being a kid with autism and stuff, it was almost like a guide for me. Because uh, Wesley was good at all these things, right? But he never really like told anybody about it. And I think a lot of problems with autism is like I'm focusing on things and I'm learning about things that nobody else really cares about. And so the only way to really fit in socially is like not talk about them. You know, like it it really comes down to you can just be comfortable with just liking something and having that just be your thing. 
Mm-hmm. And the way Wesley goes about stuff is he only really tells people anything when they ask him. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he looks like crazy skilled because like nobody knew that he had this ability. And all of a sudden it's like it's gotten them out of danger. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, that was very much like my approach growing up with how to be social was like just talk about what everyone else is talking about. Never allude to being good at anything. And then when you are all of a sudden good at something that comes up naturally in conversation it looks a lot better than you just like talking somebody's ear off and uh i think with wesley's off-screen nature about his like character growth where you don't really see it but you just see the results of it that was a really good thing for me to identify with with but i don't think that's necessarily a wide appeal um i think the intention of this character is very much to be like a set piece and everything else is going on around him. That's why they don't really give him any flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So he, I don't think he's in, meant to be relatable. Yeah. Who are your guys' favorite, favorite like, like characters, characters in the movie? Like, like Nico. Especially. Yeah. He's, he's fucking awesome. Here's, Here's my ranking. ranking. He's, he's number one. one. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be like, Buttercup. What about the boo lady? Oh, she scares the shit out of me. I didn't. I still don't love her. You filth. She's like a Muppet. She hits me the same as a Muppet. <laughs> I'm sorry to whoever that actor is. Um, I like Humberdink. I think he's funny. I have a few. If you do want to jump into theory. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, tell me. No, tell me all your theories. Us. Well, I'm going to start with a really easy theory because this one I don't think has a ton of, like, <laughs> it's just a fun one. But I think Humperdink and... Uh, the Duke are definitely supposed to be romantically involved. They're pretty queer coded. Yeah. Like, um, like you were telling me this theory like right after you watched the movie in preparation for this episode, and I was it was like an aha moment for me where I was like, oh. Well, it, it explains why he like obviously I think they struggle with different. Uh, mental things is they're not bad because they're gay they're <laughs> just gay in addition to being bad people they're gay and evil uh, <laughs> not evil because gay <laughs> yeah um but you know Humperdinck doesn't really care about killing his wife or even having a wife i think it honestly checks a box of he doesn't have to have a wife if he's a widower mm. you know yeah um so i think like part of his grand scheme is to set up a relationship in his life, where nobody's gonna bug him about being married, <laughs> and he keeps the Duke right there, <laughs> and they both. I I think the more telling sign is there's a conversation where they have in the woods, where uh, the Duke is gonna go, you know, torture Wesley, and the prince is like, like Humperdinck is just like, I'm so busy. I've got a wife. My wife's uh, <laughs> murder to plan. I got a wedding. Like, all these, like, political things. Like I've got to set up a, a war between with Gilder. <laughs> you know, all these, like, political things. And the Duke is going to go off and do his thing. But they're in service of each other. You know, they're working as a team in a relationship that where they play to their each other's strengths to achieve their goals, even if their goals are terrible. Uh, I think it just lends itself more to saying that they're in a relationship when they can work like that intertwined mm-hmm. they're in a good relationship <laughs> they're in a really efficient relationship yeah <laughs> <laughs> is do you do you two would you agree that um humperdinck is the prototype for farquaad in shrek 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Definitely. That's even yeah. like right down to the hair. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that they they do give Humperdinck some flamboyant tendencies, and I think that's to play off the audience's at the time distaste for like gay culture. Um, and so that's played up in his like outfits, his hair, all that kind of thing, the way he talks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that is taken like that archetype is taken definitely for Farquaad to be once again. I think Farquaad's more removed from that, where they didn't do it playing off of making fun of gay people, but it's almost like passed down from <laughs> from Humperdinck, yeah. like because they're trying to you know like character design is all about sending subliminal messages so people understand a character without having to give them too much screen time. Yeah. And uh, so like how they're dressed and their cadence of speech and stuff like that, it plays a big important role in that. Mm-hmm. That would backfire these days. Far- Farquaad and Humperdinck would be hits. Yeah. Have you, how, <laughs> have you two been on the side of TikTok where it's um, gay Luke Skywalker and they're talking about Luke's like knee high black leather boots that he wears when he goes <laughs> to defeat Darth Vader? <laughs> no, but you've uh, sent me a couple I of those. I fucking love that. But I, yeah, I sent it to Ruben and he was like, Slay! Oh my gosh, I like Luke. And I'm like, that could backfire <laughs> so fast if you queer code the wrong character. Yeah. <laughs> Villain. So weird. Mm-hmm. The villain becomes the the one everyone likes. Yeah. So the Jennifer Coolidge effect. Mm-hmm. I'm going to coin that. Okay, I've got a, a big overarching fa- theory. Do it. Like, this is probably the biggest one with, like, the most connections, but I don't know how to speak linear- linearly, so I'm just going to kind of flush it out as we go. The life-sucking device. What do you think of that? I never understood it, and I know exactly what you're about to say, and when you explained it to me, I was like, I think I understand science now. (laughs) (laughs) What? Science? Like, capital S? Yes. (laughs) I think it it plays up, like, uh, I don't know, have you guys seen Full Metal Alchemist, the anime? I've seen the the live-action movie. Oh, okay, I don't think that counts. But, like, with science, obviously, like, energy in general, just energy, it can't really be created or destroyed, it's just you know, transferred to something else. Um, so why does the machine that sucks life energy, which like we can assume is a pretty powerful energy. Why does it take power? Like why, why do you have to have a water wheel and everything like to be able to suck life energy out when, and what are they doing with that life energy? Like what would the, I, I feel like you wouldn't have put that much dedication in, into inventing something just for torture I know they try to play it off like the Duke is like just a murderous, you know, likes to watch people in pain, which I think he has no affliction to. I think he's totally fine with it. But I almost feel like it's for, you know, if you were to harvest life energy and the Duke and Prince Humperdinck could live forever. And that would be together. (laughs) Once they deal with the wife problem. <laughs> I know so it's really just a romance the whole time. For immortal gay romance. So now introduce Wesley as a character, and this this comes into play a little bit more with like the book and how much time they spend on um, how well known Buttercup is for her beauty. Um. Like, they spend a lot of fucking time talking about, like, ranking 
women basically by their beauty um, in the region for like which one's the best, you know, candidate for a bachelor or like prince or whatever. So I, I guess I'll put, uh, yeah, so I'll put that one out there and then I'm going to move to Wesley and I, and like the Dread Pirate Roberts and stuff like that. I think that Wesley, uh, every time he says anything about his backstory, I don't think it's the truth. Cause you already start off with, uh, like, man, I'm, it's difficult for me to put uh, all my thoughts into to one order. I just keep jumping around in my head, so it's hard to speak. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, basically, like, I think that Wesley is lying about his backstory. There's a lot of very specific things that don't really make sense. Like, why the hell a pirate would care about being uh, like immune to the poison that he gives Vicini. And... Um, a lot of other things, and I'm starting. To, I started to feel like the Dread Pirate Roberts was more of an association thing, like a company or not a company, but like you know, secret organization, mm. and that he may have been a plant there, like at West at uh, Buttercup's place before to keep an eye on her because of the political ties that she would have by marrying somebody, and he probably was not supposed to be romantically engaged with her um but i think that explains a little bit of the things that he learns on the outside and he has a really good understanding of politics uh he for some reason knew the plot on buttercup's life because he showed up right at the right moment um when nobody else did and that i think has more i don't think he would have learned that from vicini i don't think it was any kind of surface level stuff that you're showing in the movie i feel like he would have learned that intel from political ties and hearing more about what Humperdinck was planning with other people and probably Humperdinck's plans with Vizzini to start a war with Gilder could even be just Gilder itself may have intel on this kind of thing. Mm. Um, but I think he's lying and I don't think it would be a stretch considering he lies to everybody about his identity in the first place. He tells a story about his identity to get what he wants out of other people. It's almost like a manipulation tactic. He is who the other person fears. And that person changes based on his need in the relationship. Um, where am I going with this? Um, so I think the big, you know, uh, the big thing, the big whole movie plot is really about wherever, like, Wesley's ties are with... And the big threat, the big, you know, life force threat, like huge threat of, you know, immortality and basically vampires. <laughs> vampires? Well, like, I'm just saying like the Duke and... Uh, Forever people. Yeah, yeah. The, the Duke and Prince Hubbardink, like, yeah, basically <clears throat> suck other people's so, life force to extend their own life. I think so, it's more of a vampire-esque thought. Flot, uh, plot. Yeah. So Wesley is a spy for a secret Gilder-adjacent association to prevent specifically Humperdinck, but in general royal people from sucking out life and living forever, which the Duke is onto the science of. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even necessarily say he's, like, a, associated with Gilder. I feel like it's a completely, like, separate 
organization, right? Like, like a higher power kind of entity. What well, I wouldn't, I, yeah, it's almost like a. Uh... Was that your ankles? No, that was I squished this can. Oh. <laughs> Click clack. You know, a small team of people to save the world, right? Uh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and whoever Wesley's mentor off screen was was a big part of that. Um, his reason for being at the farm with Buttercup. It was a very, like, uh, well-known in society figure, mm-hmm. even from, like, when she was a young girl. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, like, ties like that that I think would be really interesting for, about this plot against, like, you know, trying to prevent whatever the Duke and Humperdinck are planning. Because mm-hmm. at some level, if you can harvest, like, life energy, what's, like, that would be countless lives as long as things progress and maybe sucking one person's life only gives you like a year so then you have to kill like 60 people just to get like 60 more years mm-hmm. i think it could be a cascading effect but once again all this stuff is like <laughs> you can draw conclusions from what they tell you but they don't give you any details about what's going on but it the movie does very much give you this feeling that there is so much that you don't understand because they will only tell you lies like every conversation is a lie because everybody has a hidden motivation and that's part of the mechanic within the movie even if you just take everything that's on screen for face detail that if you were to extend that philosophy of like what they're trying to say in the movie it leads me down this movie gives me a lot of ideas for conspiracy theories because there's so many things that could be going on like to explain these hard points like when when you know there's one thing like true things that actually happen these are important things like the life-sucking machine is not a focus of the movie, but holy fuck does that stick out, does it not? Mm-hmm. Like, no, it's like, a weird thing to put in that setting. Yeah. Hmm. I like it. <laughs> I like it. What are we at? We're at 108, so oh, we damn. should wrap up. But I could listen to, and like, I mean, Raptured by Princess Bride, and I don't <laughs> even like love the movie. I <laughs> Oh, I hope I didn't, like, I mean, I know nothing I really talked about is really about, like, in the movie, but um, hopefully I didn't take up too much time and you guys are, are on board with what I said, or, or think I, it's fun at least. I think that's part of Who's Your Mommy is that we use, we use the movie as backdrop to have other conversations. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same as why we talk about dress codes and inherent body image issues that come with dress codes in our Winx Club episode. Yeah. Like, media is a conversation starter. Mm-hmm. And it's better than vodka. Hell yeah. I do have one point to wrap up my theory. Hell yeah. Um, back to like how I appreciate the medium being used. I think that with my conspiracy in mind <laughs> of like a lot of things happening off screen, they're using the medium of a movie that can only show you key moments. And you have to, you go in with the premonition knowing there's things happening off screen to play into that and really like push it forward. And I think that's, why it's kind of a surrealist type of movie rather than, um, I guess what I would say, like taking what's on screen for face value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just like really cool medium type stuff, like use with, using the medium to work with you mm-hmm. um, for stories. I think is like one of my favorite things um, when I come across me that does it. And this one is not in your face at all. It's kind of like hidden, but I have this, Agging feeling, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the mommy? 
Who's the mommy? Is Chase the mommy? <laughs> <laughs> is every guest that we have officially the mommy of that episode? I mean, I, I, I like, uh, I have this image in my head of, uh, Wesley farm boy vampire hunter and I want like a logo drawn because <laughs> I was like it took me a minute to grasp that concept all the way and my brain was like vampire hunter what <laughs> I mean I was gonna say Chase or Dread Pirate Roberts or Wesley the Dread know. Pirate Roberts organization no it's really uh DPR. the medicine maker's wife that's the mommy yeah Wesley would be dead without that chocolate peanut and she would push the, you know, love part of the movie. Oh, I have a stupid thing to close out this episode. Okay. What's your guys' opinion of people using the the, the Princess Bride impression from the wedding and Princess Bride in their actual wedding ceremonies? It is cool or stupid as fuck. I think it is potentially one of the most millennial things you can do. Uh, yeah okay uh, it gives it's the millennial cringe energy where it's like yeah. yeah where it's like it wouldn't necessarily be cringe if it was done the first time but everybody taking it as and like redoing one thing that yeah. <laughs> they see online like, over and over oh my god like, that's such a millennial thing <laughs> can i say it's the same energy as proposing at disney <laughs> i was gonna say it's the same energy of as how ted mosby wants he, in when he dreams about his children unironically he's like luke and leia yeah. It's like the same as that where it's like nerdy for attention. <laughs> and as someone who's nerdy because of neurodivergent hyperfixations, I just can't relate. Yeah. I, I <laughs> but cool. All of these things have the same energy. Yep. Yep. Welcome to the Welcome Chase to the Who's Your Mommy Extended Universe. Thank you very much. Uh do you want to plug any socials, projects, things you want if you've made it this far, you obviously fucking love us, so you should go support Chase and the work uh-huh. he's doing. Mhm. Um, I don't really have anything to plug as far as advertising, um, but I'm just, I'm making a, uh, under the sea adventure style concept album, um, and working on some video games, hopefully to, uh, you know, release kind of everything as a cross plat, uh, like cross media medium kind of like a uh, thing in the future, but you know, that nothing, nothing to really say about it. It's just, if there's, if there's something to see, it will be. You will see it. It will be promoted by the Who's Your Mommy Instagram. At Who's Your Mommy. <laughs> Speaking of which, go follow us. Go follow at us who's on your mommy. Instagram. At, at Who's Your Mommy pod. Do we have other business things we need to say? Um, come see us live at Tree Fort. Yes, the twenty fourth at three p.m. Boise Center East. And for more information on that, you can look at our Instagram. Once and again, can, at Who's Your Mommy pod. You can always DM us. Yeah, we always answer DMs. Yep, unless and, you're mean. It's it yeah it's me it's me I'm a, I'm answering the DMs. Um, um, you can rate us. You can leave. We have a new feature on Spotify. If you're listening on Spotify, you can leave a comment on this episode. Yes. So tell us what you think. Tell us what you think of the theories. Do you think Humberdink and the Duke are a couple? They're in um, love. Yeah. And yeah, leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Very kind of you. Thank Keep. You guys so much for having me Chase, we fucking love you, dude. Yeah. Abby loves you more than me. I. <laughs> Just a little bit. Looks like Anthony wants to scare up a couple of